Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. questions haunt every life bright sandy crouch the first what are we meant to be and the second why are we so far from what we're meant to be hello and welcome to restoring the soul a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that i'm your producer brian Beatty, and our guest today is brandon applehans founder and executive director of my quiet cave a ministry in Denver, Colorado, that helps close the gap between the church and the mental health community. Now, as Brandon shares his own struggle with mental illness, uh, you'll hear about how his life of faith and the pursuit of mental health existed in separate worlds. Brandon's passion is to make the church a safe place for people with mental health issues, as well as equipping the church to be a resource instead of a roadblock. Now, Brandon holds a B.A. in Speech Communications from Colorado State University and a Master of Divinity from Denver Seminary. Now, after living with bipolar disorder for years, he wants all people to experience hope and the fullness of life in the midst of struggle. So stay tuned for in this podcast, we hope you'll discover how to break the stigma of discussing mental health issues in the church, the difference between the various bipolar disorders and why we in the church should talk about mental health and mental illness. And now here's your host, Michael John Cusick. Welcome to the program, Brandon Applehans, who is the founder and director of My Quiet Cave. Brandon, welcome. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me on. We're sitting here in a makeshift studio at the international headquarters of Restoring the Soul, uh, which sounds really impressive, but we basically have a folding table and a couple of Radio Shack microphones, and uh, it's uh, it's primitive, but I'm so glad you're here. It's a, it's a great setup, Michael. Thank you. So you made yourself available on short notice because I felt an urgency to talk about mental illness and mental health in your organization makes space for faith and mental health. So Tell me about My Quiet Cave, how it started, and what you guys are about. Yeah, uh, My Quiet Cave came out of my own story. A lot of us have stories around mental health. My own story started when I was 14, and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And I went through about two years where we were trying to find the right medications, and we were dealing with suicidal ideation, and we were just trying to make it through. And we found great meds. 
I had been a really great client. But then I, I got this feeling when I was in uh, in seminary, the church needs to be able to do something around mental health to serve people really well. And I don't know what that looks like yet, but I think I need to be a part of it. So we started looking around. We didn't see a lot of other organizations at the time doing much work. So we started one and figured we'll try something and see what works. And that was kind of the genesis of My Quiet Cave. So what do you exactly do? Right now, My Quiet Cave is basically two pieces. The first piece is this overarching education arm. And that's because if you want to talk about mental health, you have to break enough stigma so that we can have a conversation. People aren't just going to run up and say, hey, Michael, let's talk about my mental health, unless they're probably in one of your rooms. or, But no one's going to run up to you at church and be like, hey, Michael, mental health, let's talk about what's going on with me and my depression and how terrible it is. So you have to break some stigma in order to get there. So we do a lot of education for pastors and faith leaders around how do you break stigma? What does that look like? How do you have these conversations? How do you begin them so that we can have an honest conversation about what's actually going on? And that so you can feel prepared and know how to deal with really hard situations and know how to pass those on. So right away, we are into semantics, and we talked a little bit about this before we hit record, but uh, you're using the phrase mental health, and uh, I think I've shared on the program before, and when we had lunch a couple of years ago, I shared with you that I'm bipolar type 2, which Mm -hmm. some people call baby bipolar or CEO syndrome. That's more about hypomania and then depression looks like irritability and not having a lot of energy, although it can be severe depression. You referred to your bipolar, and that was type 1, correct? Right. And that's a more severe mental health issue. Can you talk just a little bit about what that is? Yeah, absolutely. Bipolar type 2, you have that hypomania and what it feels like, just like you said, the CEO syndrome, that I can do anything, I can conquer anything. I am Superman, except I left my cape at home. Bipolar type 1, you just take that up another notch until you lose touch with reality. Or three notches, right? (laughs) I tend to, uh, yeah, I tend to be at least three notches. (laughs) And then my problem was I thought I could solve every problem in the world. I I would lose touch with what was going on with me. I would get paranoid. I would start getting stuck in my own head. I would get really irritable, really angry. And you see psychosis in that spot where people just lose touch with everything. And then as high as you go, you can see a matching low. And you can go exactly as low as you went high. So you can hit these incredibly low depressions that are just completely hopeless. And it's not a fun mental illness to have, that's for sure. And I cycle between those highs and lows really, really fast, which isn't... Some people do, some people don't. There's not... I'm not going to say, hey, my bipolar is worse or better because I cycle faster or slower. At some point, you just have what you have and you, you have to deal with it. But it's uh, it's definitely a nasty, nasty thing to deal with. And just to give people a little bit more clarity, uh, and again, back to semantics, up until 1984, I believe, when DSM-3 came out, what's now bipolar used to be called manic depressive illness or manic depressive disorder. So if you think about mania on one side and depression on the other, that it's this pendulum that swings back and forth. So semantically speaking, you speak of mental health, and you talked about the stigma around that, and I agree. And one of the things I really want to unpack is the stigma, why that is, what helps overcome that. 
However, my experience, and maybe this is because I sit with people, you know, in a closed room that's confidential, is that a lot of people are willing to talk about mental health, but not a lot of people are willing to talk about mental illness. And so in the last couple of years, as prominent Christian leaders have taken their own life, and even recently, tragically, Jared Wilson, the megachurch pastor, uh, who my heart goes out to his family and his congregation and all of his loved ones, I started thinking about my own mental illness, and I started thinking, well, I wouldn't say publicly that I have a mental illness, which is really interesting because I wrote a book detailing (laughs) my sex addiction and my alcoholism, and uh, there was something that seemed more shameful and more stigmatizing about saying I have a mental illness than about saying I'm a sex addict or a former sex addict and alcoholic. And I I thought about that, and it's because I can't control my neurology and my physiology. I can manage the symptoms, but it was me who made the choices to drink and to act out sexually. And it was really interesting theologically, like, oh, okay, something's more shameful if you can't control it, right? Like I can take the blame and somehow atone or make myself lovable if it's something that I can't really control. So have you bumped into this distinction, even in the language you use between mental health and mental illness? Yeah, we use the words mental health mostly because it's a little more palatable for a lot of people. Because when we're talking about a group, even if it's meant for bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorders, those are all mental illnesses. But someone sees finding hope in the middle of mental illness, they won't show up for that group. They see finding hope in the midst of mental health, and they will, because maybe I'm going to learn some tools and skills to get better. And I agree with you on the stigma piece. When you see people in recovery, you can look at a time and a date and say, this is my sober date, and I've been in control since this date. And my addiction had me, and now I own my addiction. And With mental health, you can't look at it that way. I can't look at my bipolar disorder and say, I've been in recovery with bipolar disorder since we got my meds 100% right because they're chronic disorders. You've got it. I've got a mental illness. It still affects my life. I still have to do incredible work on self-care and everything else in order to be well. And there's almost always uh, like a computer program running in the background, even if your symptoms seem to be managed and that you're doing well, there's something running in the background that's just always there. Uh, That's how I feel with my bipolar type 2. Yeah, like an antivirus program or something. This is what keeps me on track. Yeah, yeah. So as you started My Quiet Cave, your programs and what you do as an advocate and trying to get the church to talk about this, your program has really grown. And my guess is that that's not because there's people without time on their hands saying, I'd like to, you know, go to more conferences or groups, but that this really, really struck a chord with with people, whether it's loved ones of someone with a mental illness or actual men and women with these issues. In Denver, this has been a really interesting conversation because Denver is a city that's been highlighted with mental health issues. And mental illness when we talk about Columbine shootings and Aurora Theater shootings. And recently we lost two pastors in the Denver metro area to suicide last year that I was aware of. There might have been more and I just didn't know. And STEM shootings and shootings at Arapahoe High School. Like there are so many things that have happened that are 
they're, they're actually trigger points for people where they can look at and say, that's what mental health issues, mental illness can do when it's unwound and, and when it's at its worst. And so in Denver, it's been amazing to see. We t- I talked to one pastor and he said, you know, I think I might have seen the Aurora Theater shooting guy. I'm, I think I may have seen James Holmes in my congregation less than a month before that happened. Could I have made a difference? Wow. And you talk to groups in the south side of Denver and you hear, yeah, we had three suicides in one of our groups. Or we had a suicide in every school that was represented in our youth group. Or, like, the stories just keep going and going and going. And that's before you start thinking about 20-ish percent of people dealing with a mental illness every year. Right. Yeah, I am reminded regularly that though I have a lighter version of bipolar, that for bipolar type 2, there's a 15% suicide rate of anybody who has that diagnosis. And I think that's closer to 20% for bipolar type 1. And then if you look at uh, adding in variants of personality issues, substance abuse, all of that, that just goes higher and higher and higher. Right. And we start asking this question, like, what's wrong with me? Why is it that I can't live a a good life anymore? And our caregivers are asking the same questions. They're asking, what did I do wrong? Or how do I actually get resources? And all of us feel alone because of stigma. No one's running around saying, hey, I have bipolar disorder, apparently except the two of us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Right. There's a a billion-dollar med industry around bipolar, but it's just you and I, actually. You know, we take a lot of pills. We take a lot of pills. Yeah. Yep. (laughs) Um, <laughs> it's it's fun to have two bipolar people, actually. I, I should break into my Robin Williams impression, but we won't go there right now. Oh, that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, um, but you see this, like, all of these questions, what's wrong with me? And then as caregivers, how do I step and just tiptoe around these issues? Because I don't want to set this person off. But at the same time, I want to challenge them to get help. And at the same time, they're going off the rails and there's so many questions and so many things that we think we're the only one dealing with and the stats say you're not the only one dealing with it you probably know three or four people dealing with bipolar disorder just based on your social network and you probably know 20 30 40 people dealing with depression or anxiety and none of us in general can look at our you know our friends around us and go who are my 25 or 30 folks that are really just struggling with life right now or trying to support somebody we just don't know and because that everybody feels alone and nobody should which we are going to get to that really what you do is not just give talks about oh we should be more aware of mental illness but you really go to kind of the core issues about personhood and being a human being in this world and being known and loved but i want to back up let's define mental illness for a moment When I started my career almost 30 years ago as a counselor and a mental health practitioner, I worked in um, inpatient settings, and I worked in community mental health. And so I was steeped in, back then, what we called severe mental illness, and that was schizophrenia, bipolar, and chronic major depression, the three things that are most life-threatening and the three things that really impair people the most where they end up in economic situations where they're disadvantaged, they're on disability, welfare, homeless, etc., and very, very high level of impact, not just on those individuals and their families, but in society. 
So when you speak of My Quiet Cave and working with the church, what, what is the spectrum of, uh, of issues, diagnoses, et cetera, that you speak to? We're in that same SMI category, the severe mental illnesses, so schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, severe depression. But then we're also working with a lot of anxiety disorders. We're seeing a lot of eating disorders, personality disorders. What about post-traumatic stress disorder? Because that that seems to be everywhere, and it's woven into all of those other things. We're seeing a lot of that, too. In fact, we just wrote a curriculum, and and a lot of it was built for veterans and first responders, but you could apply a lot of it to just the general population um, called Tribe that we're actually – it's going to be – most likely spinning off into its own nonprofit to support first responders and veterans. But that idea that something in my circumstance broke me, not just my brain is broken. So say more about that. Yeah. When we talk about PTSD, I think it's really helpful to think of it as a brain injury instead of a mental illness, because you can look at the symptoms and say, this is clearly a mental illness because you've got sometimes depression that goes along with it and sometimes high rates of anxiety You've got panic and triggers and everything else, but it's because your brain was actually injured by something that happened, whether that was a rape or violence or whatever it happens to be. There's something that actually hijacks your your neurology and physically breaks the way that your brain functions, and you have to deal with how it's been broken and start working on how do we heal this and how do we move through it and build coping mechanisms with what's going on now. I love how you said that, the brain injury versus a mental illness, um, that something that you're born with or uh, something that's genetic. And my mind goes to three categories. So I talked about the stigma of addiction and something behavioral, which, in fact, in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, we're now in the fifth edition of that since 1941, I believe. Uh, those are mental illnesses, uh, not sex addiction currently, but alcohol, substance use, etc. Um, then you have mental illnesses, which are something that people have, like diabetes, and then brain injury. So like three categories, and it seems like there might be different levels of stigma and or acceptance with that. Absolutely, because there's something helpless in some of those situations, right? Having... A neurological disorder, which we both do, you know, we came out of the womb with jacked up brain chemistry. Indeed. Yes. And uh, not to be racist, but uh, I was raised Irish Catholic in an alcoholic home. So that like jacked up coming out of the wound with <laughs> with funky brain chemistry. Uh, I was just all German with. I, I don't have any of that, but. We have all our own family stuff too. Yeah, I, I, well, my mom was was partly German, so I won't I won't try to build a case for you know German genetics, but let's not blame it all on the Irish. Uh, okay, great. Well, I'm all German, so we clearly can't blame it all on the Irish. But <laughs> that's right. But I think we should now be moving along from the ethnic conversation and Abs- mental illness. All right. Absolutely. Um, but then when you talk about brain injuries, there's still so much shame around a lot of those injuries, too, because I was strong and then I was not because something broke me. And I think that's the same case in a lot of cases for mental illness, um, like bipolar disorder is I was strong. And then there was a triggering moment where this started to set in and I lost who I was in this process. And I don't know who I am anymore because I am this person that I thought of before I had this illness. It's kind of like if I break my arm, 
I don't define myself by Brandon with a broken arm. I'm just Brandon, and I happen to right now have a broken arm. And when it gets better, I'll be back to being 100% Brandon. And right now, I'm kind of crippled Brandon. Which brings up uh, this issue that there's so many um, wounds of having a mental illness. There's so many um, uh, destructive, potentially destructive consequences. You know, all the symptoms that we talked about earlier. But you're describing that moment when something changes or flips, whether it's a brain injury or the onset of an illness, um, where there's a grief of the loss of the person that you knew yourself to be. And in many cases, people don't get that back. Talk about that loss for you and what that was like. So I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 14. And we have a family history of bipolar disorder. Our family tree is just littered with it. So it's really easy. I walked into my psychiatrist's office. I said, here's what's going on with me. Here's our family history. He diagnosed me on the spot, and we started treatment. The average person might take 10 years for that right. process. That's rare. It took me an hour. That's, I think that was a huge win. Hmm. Um, then we spent the next two years trying to work through different medications, and some things worked better than others, and I was allergic to some things, and it's just it's not a fun process. Uh, it's getting better now with brain scans and stuff like that that are coming out. But at the time, this is 20-some years ago, it was kind of like someone playing with a chemistry set in your own brain and just seeing what worked and what didn't. And we worked through so many of those things over two years, and I was a really, really great client, and I really trusted my psychiatrist. I did everything he told me to do. When we finally found the right meds two years later, it was like the clouds parted, you know, the angels sang, this... Kind yeah, of yeah. moment, And then 10 years after that, I was in counseling because I, I, I felt like my life was bottoming out. And I realized I had never grieved the fact that high school was supposed to be a really, really great time for me. And I had not even purchased my own yearbooks. I just wanted to forget it. I never wanted to be there. I never wanted to hurt that bad. I never wanted to experience anything like that. And I didn't want to remember it either. I just wanted to move past it. And here was this time that was supposed to be the time when you're, you know, running track and running cross country and doing all these things. Most of my friends ran track and cross country and played soccer. I wasn't in the football crowd. But you're supposed to do things and live things. And I wanted to die the whole time. And I just wanted it to stop. And there wasn't really a framework for me to process that I'd lost two years of my life. Just gone. Just wiped out. And a massively critical time in your life where your identity is developing and who you are. Right. And so I, I joked around for years that I bought my counselor a truck because we had to do so much work walking through the self-loathing and walking through the failure and walking through all of these issues that came up before and after that time and walking through this massive grief of, I, I don't get that time back. There's never a time in my life where I'll be able to look back and went, you know, I trained really, really hard and I did this at state in track. No, like, I don't get that time. Right. A lot right. of us don't get that time. Hey, we're going to need to wrap up, but I would love for you to come back to further this conversation. And uh, we will do that in just a moment. And by the way, you said you bought your therapist a truck. I bought my therapist a BMW 7 Series with all of the uh, counseling that I did. Well, I think you win, but I think my counselor was always a little bit more redneck than buying a 7 Series 2. <laughs> so maybe it was a Ford F-150 King Ranch or something like that with the dually wheels. and Absolutely. Um, what are, you know what, 
Let's talk about this in the next episode. Thanks for listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Mental illness is serious and can even be life-threatening. If you or someone you know is struggling, reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Or to learn about resources for mental illness, visit the National Alliance on Mental Illness at NAMI.org. That's N-A-M-I dot O-R-G. Be sure to join us next time for another stimulating conversation on Restoring the Soul.